for more than one reason this week I have weddings on the brain. The obvious reason is my daughter is that my daughter's is this week. And in case I haven't mentioned it, I very much hope that if you can, you will come back this afternoon to pray John and Mary Olive into their life together. Three weeks ago, we had a wedding here, and I preached. Someone who was there, and who I like a lot, and who's been married for a long time, asked if I would give that sermon again on a Sunday, and I said I might. And then, lo and behold, the readings appointed for this morning include Isaac and Rebecca's marriage, and that passage from the Song of Solomon that we read at my own wedding to Julie, and that four out of five weddings that I've ever been to. So a wedding sermon you're going to get. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. In North by Northwest, Alfred Hitchcock arranges for young and lovely Eva Marie Saint to explain to ever-charming Cary Grant how a girl like her could have fallen into the handsome but treasonous embrace of James Mason now found to be a Russian spy. This is the tender I love you and at last I found you scene when the lovers meet in a glade of evergreens near Mount Rushmore. The problem for women like me, Coos, Eva Marie, is men like you. Men like me, Coos, Cary Grant, not much protesting. Men like you, What's wrong with men like me? They don't believe in marriage. Why, well, I've been married twice. A tad naughty, that seemed to Hitchcock's audience in 1959. Then, as far as I knew, everyone in my town believed in marriage, and it was a rare bird had been married twice. What might surprise a movie crowd today, however, is that Hitchcock does bring that couple to the altar at the end. We last meet the bride and groom climbing into their sleeping berth as their honeymoon train disappears into a tunnel, a Freudian zinger as the curtain falls and the lights come up. Three generations have come and gone, and almost everything has changed. Few directors anymore are moved to offer marriage to bring that summer movie romance to its lawful happy ending. The audience can certainly leave content without it. Even so, in wonder of wonders and miracle of miracles, considering all that's changed, most of us believe in marriage. A few years back, Phyllis Rainey and I decided to offer a class on marriage. We had young couples planning their big church wedding, particularly in mind. But when the doors were opened, the rookies were almost run over by a motley crowd of veterans of every shape and stripe. Long married pairs figuring it couldn't hurt to get a communications tune-up. Younger sufferers from the seven-year itch, which sets in closer to four than seven, I think. People like that. Some couples arrived, obviously, in trauma. You can pretty much guess the causes. Lots and lots who came were casualties of marriage, once, twice bitten, twice, three times shy. These arrived with looks that seemed to say, we believe in marriage, help us in our unbelief. 
They did still want it, to be sure. They wanted God to bless it. They wanted to stand before the altar and take the vows. And to this holy union, Eve Smith and Adam Jones now come to be joined. Tolstoy opens Anna Karenina with, Anna Karenina with his famous proverb, Every happy family is alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I suppose that's true. Every happy family is alike. How about every happy marriage is alike? Notice that Tolstoy does not claim that every happy person is alike. You and I know full well that some people seek their happiness quite outside of happy marriage and find it. But I believe I'll go with Tolstoy and say that at least insofar as he means to say that happy marriages are built on certain qualities in common, he's right. I believe I won't try to name them all. I will name two. Time, that's one, and something in and out of time, that's the other one. Time. Eve and Adam take this down. Happiness in marriage takes time. I mean it plain and simple. Time together, children not invited. This will not be as easy as now may seem. If you want time together, you'll have to schedule it, and then you'll have to guard it. So learn this phrase. Sorry, we'd love to come, but we have a previous commitment. The commitment is the one that you made just now and in no uncertain terms. Each of you now professes willingness to forsake all others in deference to each other. Forsake is a word with sharp teeth, so let it work for you. It's in the book because someone, sometime way back then, noticed that that universe of others will consciously or not crowd your promise to each other. I have in mind not only the attractive co-worker who will cross your path five years from now, but just folks in general. Parents could be, friends sometimes, employers certainly, employees too, golf, ducks, the usual suspects. Not a devil in that bunch, but together they constitute a crowd. And you can write this down. The crowd's interest in your marriage has reached its peak today. From here on out, the question of priority falls to the two of you. Balance is the goal, of course. Wider family, friends, work, golf, ducks, all that warrant their attention in due season and will need your time. Just mind that in the balancing, you don't cancel one another out. So are we clear on time? Then let's move on. Something in and out of time. Phrase belongs to T.S. Eliot. The flash of winter lightning, the moment in and out of time. So how did this get started? Was it some enchanted New York evening, moon glowing above the city lights? And suddenly you catch one another in the briefest glance, a flash of winter lightning. And glance leads to words, and words arrange for coffee. Coffee makes way for dinner. Dinner leads to church. Is that how it was? Now it comes down to this. Rings, vows before the altar. A moment in and out 
time. This moment lifts us from the ordinary into mystery. That happiness in marriage rests in mystery, I can professionally and personally attest. And by mystery, I mean what? I mean spirit. I mean God, in whom we find the moment in and out of time. Here I note is a mystery left largely unexplored by Alfred Hitchcock. The Bible labels it with a variety of names and evokes it with a range of symbols. Jesus is a rich source of these. One of his symbols that I like best is living water, as in, those who ask me, I will give them living water. Adam and Eve, you've known each other, what, three years, five? More than long enough already for each of you to realize that that neither is nor will ever become an angel however it may have seemed when Cupid struck you silly. You don't need to be an angel. You certainly shouldn't want to marry one. So congratulations, you're not. You're both getting flesh and blood. And with that, you're getting soul. And Because you are getting soul, grade A human soul, baptized, signed, sealed, delivered human soul, something perfect, lives within you. There truly is a spring of living water that lives within you. It is in here, and it is real, and it is more active than you are probably inclined to think, because we live in a time that goes from dumb to dumber as far as mystery is concerned, so you'll have to pay attention to it. So pay attention, and see how this spring of living water surfaces routinely through one another's only two imperfect, two conflicted human hearts. Notice how it seeps upward through the clay, out through the normal greenery of human life. Realize that it wants to be expressed in graceful gestures, in tender expressions, in instances of kindness, authentic acts of mercy, all of which are evidence of the spirit on the rise, springs of living water replenishing your garden, moments in and out of time. Watered thus, your marriage becomes what it intends, a signal of eternity, a passage into mystery, wherein lie secrets to happiness in marriage and in the whole wide world of life.